All right. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, executives about urgent ideas and frontier issues in our world today. Um, I'm Princeton freshman Ryan Vano, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Neil Reddy. And we're so excited to welcome Professor Eikenberry to the show. Professor Eikenberry is the Albert G. Milbank Professor of Politics and International Affairs here at Princeton University in the Department of Politics in the School of Public and International Affairs. He's one of the most notable scholars in the entire field of international relations with an expansive body of work spanning countless books, journals, essays, working at think tanks and advisory groups and more. So with that, welcome Professor Eikenberry. Thank you, Neil, and thank you, Ryan. Great to be here. All right, so I guess we can just sort of kick it off. Um, one of the, the most important ideas that sort of defined your work throughout the years is, is the idea of liberal internationalism. Um, you advocate for open rule-based relations between nations as the strongest form of international organization. So just for our listeners, could you sort of lay out your, your main arguments um, for why you believe this, why you believe in this system? Yes, that's a great question. Um, and it, it goes to my current book, uh, A World Safe for Democracy, where I, I uh, partly in the context of today's crisis, uh, the, the, the sense that the liberal international order, and we'll talk more about what that is as we go forward, is, is in crisis, that we've been through a period that is now coming to an end, the, the American-led liberal international period, uh, which dates back to World War II. Uh, I, I kind of sense that that uh, that the uh, order as we've known it is is giving way to other other forces and circumstances. The the rise of China, the the COVID pandemic seems to suggest that we're, we're, our, our old international order is overwhelmed and un, incapable of doing things. Uh, and liberal democracy is is um, seemingly not working like we thought it always would at the end of the remember the end of the cold war when we thought liberal democracy was the only game in town so there is a kind of sense that crises are everywhere we're at a period where we have to rethink things uh, the relationship between democracy and capitalism uh, uh, basic questions that we study in international relations here at princeton and elsewhere how do you build international order what are the sources of order and the question that i've made my question over the years which is uh, is there a, a future for, uh, for liberal democracies uh, uh, um, in their efforts to build an open rule-based international order? So, so yes, that's the big question uh, that, I've, that I've asked. Uh, I've, this new, new book, uh, uh, World Safe for Democracy, is, is in some sense, it started um, with a a sense that I, the answer wasn't clear to me. This is, I, I write books uh, and often you start a book not really knowing how it's gonna end. You, you have a question, you, you wanna know more about, about, well say how did liberal democracies over 200 years go about trying to build international order? I, I, I wanna know, you know? So, so uh, whether I come to the view that it's over with, whether I come to the view that they do it better than other countries, uh, types of countries, um, so, so that's really where I started started this, and um, the the uh, bottom line, I guess you'd say, is that I, I do think there is a story here that's that's probably not appreciated uh, enough. That 
liberal democracies emerged in the really in the, on the global scene uh, in the 19th century. The, 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 the world before that was, was populated by states and empires and other kinds of entities that were not liberal democratic. They were autocratic, they were imperial, they were monarchical, they, they had all different features. But when the world started to, to be uh, populated by liberal democracies, new things started to happen. Uh, there were a, a new set of sensibilities and new types of what we'll call order building projects uh, that, that unfolded. And uh, so um, what I'll just say to answer your question is that I that liberal democracies do have, uh, in my estimation, a, 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 a kind of uh, set of impulses and convictions about how the world uh, does and should be organized. Uh, I'll think of uh, four of them uh, uh, at the moment. We'll talk about them maybe. First, there's in the liberal international worldview, trade and openness is good. Uh, trade, as we learn in uh, from our economics trade theory, um, has mutual benefits to those who exchange goods and services. Uh, so open trade properly managed is, 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 is mutually beneficial. There's a second argument about institutions that, that a world with governance institutions facilitates cooperation more than would be there in the absence of, of those rules and regimes and institutional uh, structures. Thirdly, that liberal democracies, and this is very important, do have unusual capacities to, um, to operate, to, to cooperate, to work together. They have values that they, that they share. We call them like-minded states. Uh, they have, and then democracies have these capacities partly due to their transparency, their openness to, to do deals with each other. There's a kind of propensity to cooperate. Now we, not always, not in all circumstances, but, but democracies do have an unusual capacity to generate glue uh, to, to, for countries to, to bind together in ways that can generate order. And then finally, uh, the liberal international worldview uh, pays a lot of attention to interdependence, to economic security, environmental interdependence. And this fourth conviction really is that under conditions of rising interdependence, we are better off if we find ways to compose our differences and coordinate our affairs. Uh, uh, under conditions of rising interdependence, uh, we, we actually have an advantage to trade off some of our autonomy uh, in favor of making binding commitments to each other to coordinate our policies for mutual gain. And so those four convictions, trade and openness, multilateral institutions, special capacities for building order that democracies have, and uh, the imperatives that follow from uh, what modernity generates, uh, uh, interdependence, leads to those four together lead to a kind of understanding about the world that you can trace over 200 years uh, of, of order building in the 19th and 20th and now in the 21st century that, that uh, tell a story that, that, that uh, is quite, quite remarkable. And as you kind of mentioned, these core values are sort of 
under siege right now um, by these threats to liberal internationalism, whether it be populist movements within Eastern Europe and even in the United States toward, or perhaps even liberal nations themselves challenging the status quo. And so do you suggest that the concept of liberal internationalism should evolve to a more pragmatic form where it's more pluralistic and more attainable and attractive for these nations to, to join? Or what do you imply is the, the sort of solution to this? That's a great question, Neil. I, I, I think that um, the first step is to, uh, in the face of these backlash uh, movements uh, inside of uh, advanced industrial democracies, certainly backlash movements on the periphery in countries that we thought had made transitions, uh, India, Turkey, Brazil, uh, and the, all of these, these, these seeming retrogressions that, that uh, make us wonder whether there's a future for, for, for liberal, open, rule-based order. Uh, the first step that I think you need to take is to take the long view that um, we, 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 in some sense, have a very high standard. We, 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 we all have a, uh, have a view of the liberal order that we often trace it back to the end of the Cold War, when there was seemed, seemingly this victory moment. And uh, you, you're too young to remember this, but I'm old enough to remember the fall of the Berlin Wall. And uh, I was actually at Princeton as an assistant professor. And the year after, I got a little money from a research account to go to Berlin and to see the the, the wall's aftermath. And, and that uh, struck me. I interviewed uh, people. And uh, it was a kind of a, a moment of euphoria for, for those who believed in the enlightenment values of freedom of speech and the uh, free world project, the, 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 the triumph of liberal democracies over fascist and totalitarian alternatives. And we kind of thought that was the history had spoken, that, that there was a, a verdict rendered by, by um, world politics in the 20th century. And now we know that we, we, we have the kind of political system that is best, it's morally right it has the high ground there and and it it's it, it it performed better materially speaking uh in face of its fascist and totalitarian alternatives uh, whether it's germany and japan during world war ii or the soviet union during the cold war so but that view is is mis misleading because the, the longer view shows us that liberal democracy has, has been repeatedly challenged um uh it's it's had its uh, moments of great uh, um, experience, uh, golden eras of growth, uh, and it's had its, its crises. The 1930s and 40s were really a, a moment when uh, uh, we, we saw the, 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 what could really happen. When we talk about backlash moments today, go back and think about the 1930s when there was really a kind of extinction moment for, for liberal democracy. Everything that seemed to be in opposition to, to these uh, to these cherished ideas, were were really pushing back. Uh, 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 it, it was a moment. If you think of that period in time, you had um, you had the Great Depression, 
you had uh, the rise of fascism, as we've suggested. You had totalitarianism making its its move. Uh, you had total war, uh, uh, the most violent, destructive war in world history. You had the Holocaust, uh, the most horrific uh, crimes against humanity uh, uh, in that same narrow space of time. And then you had the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. All of that in, in, in a, a decade or so in the lifespan of somebody who could look at, uh, at, at the world and say, this is a world that does not that is not hospitable to ideals about openness and rule of law and freedom of speech, uh, and yet, and yet, uh, and yet, you had this uh, this uh, aftermath where the pieces were picked up, and a new generation, uh, uh, which I think is understudied, the kind of period of the, the generation of 1945 who who lived through all of that that we've just noted uh, were able to re-envisage open societies, um, uh, 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 institutions of accountable government, independent judiciary, the rebuilding of liberal open societies, uh, and uh, they, they, they did it. So, so I, I think taking the long view is, the, is, is a very important step. But as you suggest, and in and, and that sense, uh, what I tried to do in this most recent book is to give the, the beleaguered uh, people looking at what looks like a kind of downward spiral of world affairs that uh, there is, you know, our earlier generations have, have experienced it, lived through it and done something about it. Uh, and that their ide the ideas that we started this podcast talking about, uh, uh, those ideas have a kind of resiliency, a kind of a gravitas. Uh, they, they shouldn't be thrown out the window easily. Oh, we tried that, it didn't work. Now we're gonna have to uh, accommodate ourselves to authoritarianism, um, uh, kind of creeping totalitarianism um, uh, that you see in, in some, some uh, non-Western countries that, that are seeking to, to overturn the, the old order. So I think, um, uh, uh, and then finally, just to, to be most responsive to your question, Neil, I think, um, th yes, that, that a kind of a pragmatic recalibration of, of, of what's possible, uh, the, to, to, to understand that the post-1989 era was an anomaly, uh, uh, that, uh, you're never going to banish from the world despotism and tyranny. You can make the make you can make make the best of it, but it's it's you 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 can't necessarily find yourself in a in a world uh, that you would like to be in. That you're always having to make tragic choices and pragmatic choices, um, and and that's where I really end the book. And maybe we'll get to that in this conversation today. Kind of what what are the the policy ideas that we might take to take into the next uh, period to 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 rebuild uh, world order. And to kind of follow up on on that that theme, would you suggest that liberal democracy in and of itself is sort of this striving towards that perfect form rather than reaching the perfect form itself? Like I know there was a, a famous book by Francis Fukuyama, The End of History and the Last Man, where it suggests that 
liberal democracy is the peak itself is the peak of um, human government. And obviously that didn't age very well. Um, so would you say that um, we should keep in mind that liberal democracy itself is constantly changing and is, and, and is a sort of in not really a stable form in and of itself? Yes, I, I, a couple of points I'd make about that very, very good question. Uh, first of all, liberal democracy is, is a, a real complex mixture. Uh, there's, the terms uh, are kind of a, an odd couple, liberalism and democracy um, uh, bespeaks the, the kind of tensions that exist in the liberal democratic imagination. Think of capitalism, democracy, they are odd couples. Uh, the, the values of, of, of liberty and equality, uh, just stating those as values that are at the center of liberal democracy, and yet uh, more of one kind of seems like you, you undermine the other. Can you have liberty and equality? Well, it, it, it bespeaks a certain balancing act. Uh, individualism and community um, sovereignty and interdependence. So the liberal democratic kind of way of looking at the world in contrast to, I don't know, I don't know Marxism or, or other kind of grand ideologies uh, is, is, a, is a worldview with values that are kind of in tension with each other. So part of the, part of the, the, the lesson of that is that you're always going to be rebalancing, re rethinking, um, uh, building new coalitions, in new circumstances. Uh, uh, John Dewey uh, described democracy as uh, modern democracy as a kind of laboratory of problem solving. You're always that you're 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 not arriving at a single destination and now you're there. You finally discovered how to live your 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 collective political life as a society. No, you're you're there's you've got new problems. You solved old ones and you have new ones. And this, this notion I mentioned earlier about interdependence, uh, which is deeply uh, um, rooted in, in the modern world uh, with science, technology, uh, industrialism, are all motors deeply embedded in, uh, in the human, modern human condition. We're constantly uh, discovering new things, knowledge, uh, technological revolutions, some of it good, some of it dangerous. Uh, so, so a kind of instability that's inherent in, uh, in, in the modern world and more specifically in liberal democracies. And so this kind of constant need to, to rethink uh, liberal democracy as we know it today is not what it was in the interwar period or in the 19th century. Um, our values even are kind of changing or what we think we need to do to, to make good on our values. This is the America itself as an experiment knows this all too well, the founding, which was imperfect. Uh, uh, slavery was, was the original sin of the American founding. Uh, Lincoln's refounding, we often think of the Gettysburg Address as that kind of rhetorical moment. Um, uh, uh, and then uh, another refounding really with the New Deal and and the, the 1930s and each of these periods, new conceptions of what it meant to live in a liberal democracy, the nature of rights and responsibilities, the unfinished work of, of, of giving people 
what we promised in our principles, uh, whether it's the right to vote, whether it's uh, um, uh, 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 the the kind of in, the kind of equality that uh, that that our, our founding principles suggest. So there is a kind of never finished work in progress quality to liberal democracy, and that's that's kind of liberating to kind of finally realize that, that you, you, you don't expect everything to be tight, tidy and, and everything's kind of, we've found answers to everything. It's, it's kind of, the, the journey is, 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 is kind of inherent and the, the destination is never really something that, that, that you actually realize. So um, that's how I, that kind of, I think that kind of thinking helps us get through these crises yeah, so i guess if we're if we're looking at it as an an unfinished system and one that we're striving towards perfection um one of the tensions that you mentioned is sort of the sovereignty versus codependency um and if you pull back that's sort of on a more theoretical level liberal internationalism versus the realism framework and so if you if you think about every nation pursuing their own self-interests can, how, how can that coexist in the best way possible with a codependent liberal internationalist system or institution? Yeah, I think that's a good question. It, it speaks to the kind of great rivalry intellectually and theoretically between liberalism and liberal internationalism on the one hand and realism on the other. And I, I just make a comment about those two different ways of looking at the world because uh, many of our listeners at Princeton take international relations courses and we, we, uh, we become familiar with these schools of thought and these two schools are, are often put up there as the big ones. There are others of course as well, uh, but um, they, they do have kind of paradigmatic different uh, ways of looking at the world. Realism, it's about power and and uh, uh, the, the, the balance of power, realpolitik, struggle uh, in a almost a zero sum way that uh, you have winners and losers and the, the, the sheer kind of insecurity that's generated from uh, the sovereign system of, of, of independent states uh, uh, creates a, a, an imperative to, to, re, to of self-regarding behavior, looking out for yourself, uh, 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 going to to the mat, so to speak, with other states over the distribution of spoils because you've got to stay powerful because no one else will come to to rescue you. As the the famous uh, University of Chicago realist John Mearsheimer said in international relations, when you dial nine one one, who who's going to answer? And 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 the fact of the matter is, no one will. No one's on the other line. No one's going to come to to save you. You're on your own. So that kind of realist view uh, uh, is is a very powerful uh, imagery of the world. Uh, liberals are, don't deny that that kind of power political world is out there, and you have to deal with it. You can't fully extinguish it, but, but there, there are other realities out there that I've talked about, which I've described as the realities of interdependence, which realism doesn't really have a very good theoretical grasp of. It, it kind of gets backgrounded. They foreground anarchy and 
balance of power politics, and they background these deeper uh, sources of mutual insecurity that are not from the relative power position of units, but it's the fact that we're all, uh, in, in some sense, in it together. Um, uh, uh, that is to say, we are um, uh, uh, all experiencing um, the the transnational interdependent world that we are we are living in. For example, climate change. For example, pandemic disease. Uh, uh, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, the kind of world of 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 that we mutually inhabit. Uh, that we summarize as interdependence is is what liberals take to be an equally important imperative that 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 privileges various forms of cooperation, and so you know the big question is what what can in the liberal view what can you do and um, you, at some level you've got to work with the kind of realist realities of 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 having a kind of a peaceful, great power world, so that you can uh, keep something st stable, so you can work on things together, namely uh, responses to to uh, to uh, interdependence of one kind or another. And uh, this is where uh, I think uh, liberals say, let's start with the liberal democracies because they tend to be. Uh, less likely to succumb to the problems of anarchy in their relationships with each other. They can, you can kind of build a, a, a kind of island of stable relations among like-minded countries. Think of the NATO countries or in the 19th century, the Atlantic countries uh, uh, had a kind of peaceful uh, relationship that allowed for the free trade movement of the middle and late 19th century to take place. Um, the international law movement, uh, uh, arbitration movements of the 19th century, um, social movements uh, in the progressive era where countries were working together across boundaries uh, to, to tackle problems of the, the gilded age, of, of, the, uh, of, of the kind of new level of capitalism that, 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 that really cascaded into the 20th century. Uh, the world economy, uh, corporations building a, a global system, uh, inequalities that were uh, upending uh, social the social peace in of our in our industrial societies. So, the kind of problem solving of the modern era that realism that in some sense doesn't take note of that very profoundly. Realists. Uh, uh, brag about, and well, they should. Their, the lineage of their ideas go all the way back to Thucydides and uh, Machiavelli and Hobbes, and it, the world never changes. It's just cycles after cycles of power rising and declining. Liberals say, no, there are, there's learning. We can do, we can, we can actually bend the arc of history. Uh, institutions can be crafted to bias the flow of events in a in a direction we like starting with again with liberal democracies so that's the that's the great struggle that uh, that we 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 think about when we talk about uh global order and whether it's a realist world or a liberal world and the fact of the matter it's both but there are we look for for openings
And to kind of shift to some more current issues and also a little bit of your book, A World Safe for Democracy. So uh, the Biden administration has recently said that they intend to follow much of your theory on liberal, liberal internationalism, specifically from your book, A World Safe for Democracy, on creating their foreign policy strategy. And so what do you think is the most important idea for them to keep in mind when crafting this strategy? And what policies could the United States spearhead to lead a more lead a more pragmatic approach. And as you um, cover in your book, A World Safe for Democracy, there's different incarnations of this sort of liberal internationalism. Do you see that a certain like form, whether it be FDR's um, sort of format for, for it or Wilson's or even the Westphalian form, do you see another similarity between that and that of Biden? Yes, I do. I, I, I'm very... Um heartened by Biden's foreign policy because I, I, I do think it, 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 it's premised on a, a reading of America uh, over the last century that I share. Uh, the reading that I've been hinting at in our discussion up to this point, uh, what I particularly think is the, the, the root idea that they have recovered, uh, one that I share when I, in some ways, directly and indirectly talk about in my new book, is, is this idea of about America's role in the world, that the United States uh, has been incredibly successful on the world stage when it's seen uh, itself um, advancing its own cause by creating uh, frameworks uh, uh, for cooperation that allow other countries to participate for mutual gain. So the United States is very is different than other great powers in world history. I, I, I teach grand strategy, often with uh, Professor Friedberg at, at Princeton. We love to start our class with the ancient world and Greece and Rome and the Chinese warring states period, and we come forward. So I, I am a huge believer in the the long view, I've already suggested that, but the long view, the, uh, the millennium uh, view of, of great powers and world order struggles across a cent many, many centuries. And what, what stru has struck me over and over again is how the US in the 20th century and to some extent foreshadowed by Britain in the 19th century, uh, these, have, these have been countries that have not simply been empires, although Britain was very much an empire, the, the greatest empire, quote unquote, uh, the most ex extensive, expansive empire uh, the world had yet seen, the US imperial in various ways, but not in the same way formally uh, in possession of an empire. What, what was different and why I do think it has something to do with the fact that they were liberal democratic capitalist states of great uh, scope and power is that they built what I would call world systems, that not just imperial orders that organized the environment. Uh, it was Bismarck that said empires are, are what defines an empire, putting people in their place, a kind of vertical uh, hierarchy of order. What the US has done in the 20th century is, is yes, there's been hierarchy, but it's been a, a more liberal kind of open system binding states together and, and built on its own willingness to bind itself to others, Europe through NATO, uh, 
East Asia through alliances. And so the creation of this kind of liberal international order uh, has been an extraordinary success for the United States. It's helped legitimate America. It's helped make countries want to get closer to America rather than resist and play the realist game of balance of power. Um, uh, it's created, uh, as I said, a framework for problem solving that other countries wanted to be part of. It's a club that uh, if you can be in it, you can get, get, get things for yourself, mutual aid society kind of functions. You get trade, you get protection, you get um, uh, multilateral capabilities for problem solving. And so what the Biden administration I think has done is, is gone back to this uh, 75 year old American playbook for, 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 for building itself up as a leader and, uh, and making itself uh, regarded, well regarded on the global stage because it's, it's part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And I think we got away with we got got away from that. Uh, the Iraq War in uh, in 2003, which was a great disaster for America's global position, the 2008 financial crisis, a great disaster for America's global position, uh, and the Trump administration uh, actively saying we want to liquidate the American liberal international order. Forget it. Trade, no, no, thank you. Alliances, no, thank you. Leaving the WTO uh, um, at the very moment there's a raging global pandemic, disregard for uh, for democracy and and human rights worldwide. So one thing after another, just literally the entire checklist of what had been America's most successful pursuits over the last 75 years, Trump was throwing them overboard. Uh, in the name of America, the, America first, and you could see what it was doing. The world was frightened by this, and America was was suffering from it as well. So whether you simply are, care about America or whether you care about what what Francis Bacon called the human estate, the the the, the plight of humanity, uh, it looked like a disaster. And I think Trump Trump uh, was the he wasn't the the beginning of that disaster, but he was the, 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 the culmination of it. And I think Biden has basically said, when you're hurting yourself and digging a hole, the first thing you do is stop digging. And so, he, so his great success as a president was he stopped digging. And second success, of course, was to, to he's an old guy, he, he's been around for a long time. And I think he kind of knows that there's been this, this experience that America has had across the last 70, 80 years. And uh, there are real ideas there that, that worked and that can be dusted off and uh, uh, re, re, re kind of re, reinvented and, and, and put to use uh, for, for mutual gain. So I guess um, speaking speaking as as America, you know, we we definitely benefit very significantly from these liberal international systems when we're the ones sort of sitting at the top. There, ideally, you wouldn't have this hierarchy, but it, it seems to be that we do have one. So, could you just sort of talk about um, 
your your ideas that like we can incorporate rising power states into the system and that if they surpass us in power then keeping them in the system is the best way to sort of keep them in check yes uh i i kind of think you're asking two questions there and the first one is really about is is the liberal order that the U.S. has presided over for all these decades and maybe trying to, in a new way, bring back in the post-Trump period, uh, is it good for everybody? And, and the answer is, it, it, historically, it's not necessarily good for everybody. There's been a lot of people who've suffered. Um, the U.S. has not always acted in a kind of enlightened liberal way. No liberal state has ever acted entirely according to liberal principles, and certainly the US is not, it's, it's behaved in imperial ways, realist ways, isolationist ways. The US has done it all in some sense. Uh, and so um, what I, when I describe the liberal international playbook, it's, it's, it's not necessarily everything, it's not the complete sum of what the US has done, it's a subset. Uh, uh, it's, it's a kind of one, part of the American experience and one that I think has been particularly successful. But the US has, 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 has um, disregarded other countries in various ways. It's not always acted on its principles. It's, it's intervened. Um, think about the Iraq war, which, which I, in my book, uh, spend some time on to try to make the case that this was not an inherently liberal war. It was more a realist war. It's more about uh, about the protecting America's hegemony in the Middle East uh, in the face of a uh, Saddam Hussein who was trying to to use perhaps the development of nuclear weapons to to in, create an independent uh, uh, power base in the region. That was not something that American hegemonic th thinkers, starting with Cheney and Rumsfeld. Uh, uh, wanted to see. So there, there was a realist uh, impulse there. So uh, part of what you have to do when you talk about, uh, you know, what, what has been America's impact on the world, you have to parse a little bit what, 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 what is motivating America, what are the ideas behind it. And you see a pretty complex picture. The liberal in me would say, the US, uh, has never been only a force for good, but it 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 has been more than 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 other great powers a force for good. I, I would try to defend that proposition that that an open rule based order is something that you you would want if you're a, a post colonial state uh, in Africa or uh, or Asia. Uh, you would want a, a a world of multilateral institutions that help. Uh, developing countries uh, stabilize their economies uh, and create capacities for in trade and finance and investment. You, you would want a kind of open system for aid and development. Um, and and the, liberal, the liberal vision, uh, which begins really domestically with, with a, a, a kind of, uh, uh, Embrace of, of values of 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 of, of freedom and, and equality. Those are kind of uh, we, we kind of take them as cliches, but they're kind of there 
uh, in the DNA of liberal societies, uh, you do care about, uh, about inequality. Uh, uh, a, 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 a domestic society that becomes too unequal economically cannot be politically equal because with wealth comes power and, an, and a, a society that is totally skewed in terms of wealth distribution will be skewed in terms of power distribution. So, uh, uh, so redistribution, um, uh, institutions that tax and redistribute and create social democracy and uh, create opportunities for people that are less well off. This is kind of the, the liberal work. Uh, you saw it in the turn of the century, you saw it under Wilson, you saw it in the great society period of L LBJ. And I think you see it in, in Biden's attempt to bring back the New Deal. And that same, there's a corollary internationally that, that not that you, you throw open your, your, your banks and, and send everything abroad through a kind of macro redistribution of wealth, but you create opportunities. You trade and invest and aid and development assistance, the kind of things that, that are not revolutionary, but are reform oriented, not enough for some, some people who would say, uh, uh, you, you're only making a, a small dent in the global inequalities that, that uh, define the world system today. But, but in some ways, the alternatives are often worse. And you're partly spending your time trying to prevent things from going the other direction, even though you're, you're, a, far, you're, you're a far distance from where you would want to be in terms of a global system where there's uh, equality across, across the world. So that's kind of the, the muddled uh, position that liberals find themselves in. Um, and uh, so I'll, I'll, that's, I think, in some ways, the, the question, the first of your two questions, just very briefly, um, I think you had China in, in, in mind when you were asking the second part of your question. And, and that was really, how do you deal with countries that are not, you know, they're kind of in and they're kind of out the, of the order? Is that, Ryan, is that where you were headed? Yeah, pretty much. As in, they they interact with these systems, but they don't really ascribe to a lot of the things that we would want them to. Yeah, um, I think you know the the United States as a liberal democratic great power has has thought about these kind of states in almost all possible ways of keeping them out, trying to bring them in, trying to. Um, Inter invade and overturn their regimes, um, uh, pursuing a policy of mutual coexistence. Uh, all those are kind of, there's a spectrum of views of ignoring, engaging, invading, uh, looking for mutual, mutual kind of projects. Uh, um, I think uh, what, what, what I would say is that, um, when it comes to a country like 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 China, uh, you you can't shape what what they're going to do. You, they, 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 Chinese China is for Chinese, and they have to decide what kind of country they want to to make of them for themselves. Um, even if we are horrified by 
some of the things we see on human rights, I, I, for, I, I, I literally weep when I see the young people in Hong Kong who, uh, who are genuinely, earnestly interested in simply living in, in a world, in a, in, a, in a place where there are simple rights of elections and democratic uh, accountability of government. And not to mention the, 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 the human rights uh, uh, transgressions you see in Western China with the Uyghurs. So I, I think how one deals with that is, is, is one of the great questions. Uh, you certainly don't stand by and ignore it. You try to find ways to, to, uh, to, 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 to indicate collectively the world indicates its, its, uh, its, its, its troubled view of these situations and finding ways to uh, make it more difficult for autocrats and, 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 and tyrants to impose their power on, on weaker people. So that's kind of the, the long work of, 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 of the human rights movement. But uh, there are limits to what you can do. And in the meantime, and this is the real answer to your question, I think you've got to try to make your own house, house a little bit more orderly, uh, take, care of, take care of your own problems, make yourself look more attractive as a, as a model of the future. Uh, America has its own, uh, you know, huge problems of race, uh, inequality, uh, uh, economic inequality. Um, uh, there's just a lot of work you need to do at home, roll, rolling up your sleeves, um, uh, uh, recognizing and, and coming to terms with your own uh, shortfall, shortfalls as a, as a country. Every country has this, America not not the least. So, uh, and as an international relations scholar, for me, what that means is that that in the long struggle between types of 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 countries, between democracies and non-democracies, um, the 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 big story will be told uh, by what what you do within your own sphere to to show that you you you. You you can solve problems and make make your society um, attractive. Um, that's what happened during the Cold War. It wasn't so much the military balance of power that, and certainly it wasn't uh, the active interventions inside the Soviet orbit. It was simply the kind of patient work to make your own society better. And so I think that kind of more. Uh, that that kind of slightly more boring work of trying to 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 uh, master modernity in your own world uh, is is what will ultimately make the difference globally in these these ideal, ideological struggles. And so, to kind of just to follow up on that, you described inequality as perhaps the biggest challenge to liberal internationalism in in the premise of your book. Um, so like would creating a better domestic policy framework for maybe creating a, a, so, a better social safety net and um, 
therefore lessening this inequality? Would that perhaps be more presentable to countries that have kind of elected these populist leaders that sort of tend towards this um, form of autocracy and maybe even isolationism from the liberal international order? Yes, that is, that is where I go in the book. And it's you're absolutely right that I, I, I think I argue at one point that the liberal international order we've been describing and, and talking about it today, uh, th that the threat to it comes more from the inside than from the outside. I, I worry more about about the, the kind of uh, retrograde uh, uh, developments inside of the West, uh, the Western democracies, uh, whether it's Hungary or Poland, whether it's, uh, whether it's the United States. Um, uh, uh, so, so that's that's definitely the case. And and the what I found in looking at the liberal international project over two hundred years is that the domestic developments are very important for the international developments. That, which is to say that in each era, it has been a kind of a kind of a confident sense that we can do better in our own society that has laid the foundation for building coalitions that are internationalist in orientation. So the progressive era uh, in the early decades of the 20th century uh, had a kind of domestic agenda uh, of, 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 of building a more modern uh, liberal state, ex expanding the franchise, all these sorts of what we might call progressive steps at home led to a kind of uh, international program of cooperation that was tied to that domestic uh, moment. So to the, you can't talk about the, the building of, a, of the post-World War II international order, the building of this new foundation that provided a kind of platform for the liberal democracies to get back on their feet after World War II without thinking about the New Deal and about the, the way in which the, the domestic state had to be reinvented for a new era and, and uh, new opportunities for people who were, uh, had been uh, put at risk by, by industrial society and the Great Depression, which brought it all out into the open. And so you got this, this agenda of, 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 of providing the social safety net, the economic security of one kind or another, which then allowed, and this is the key, then allowed for these countries to, to build political coalitions in the center, in the political center, in favor of, of internationalism, because internationalism was not seen as an enemy of, of, of people living normal lives in everyday, everyday lives, uh, in, 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 in America and other industrial societies, that there was something in it for the middle class, for the working class, for people who were probably suspicious of internationalism, uh, but yet they saw that you could, you could have it both ways. You could have a, a, a domestic system that was supportive of a middle class, but could be open as well. And that's the, the, the compromise of what we call embedded liberalism, that you had a mixed economy at home and you had a kind of internationalism that provided capacities 
for governments to manage their interdependence in a way that would stabilize their economies with full employment or what you could get close to full employment. So that that so you're absolutely right that there's a domestic and international combination that you need to have in place for for everything to work. It's extraordinarily difficult to have open societies domestically and an open system internationally. It's almost like that seems like a, an Olympic diving uh, 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 attempt that would be score off the points for difficulty. <laughs> if you can do that, you get total points. You get uh, you are creating an order that that was never thought possible in earlier centuries. But now we're actually literally trying to figure out how to build an architecture for open societies to exist in an open international system. Again, it will never be done fully, but that's kind of where we're at. And, and it requires both domestic and international commitments uh, that can be built and sustained. So as we're sort of wrapping up here, um, the name of our podcast is of course, Policy Punchline. And we like to close by asking our guests what the punchline is. So what do you believe that our listeners should walk away, the most important thing that they should walk away from this interview with? Well, um, the, the most obvious is that building international order is very difficult. And uh, we can learn something from history to inform our generation's efforts to do order building on a global scale, but that's not what I'm going to select as my takeaway. So my takeaway is, is um, in thinking about global order, uh, it's useful to um, remember Benjamin Franklin, one of the American founding fathers, one of my favorites, because he was just so amazingly smart and inventive, a polymath of various sorts. Uh, on July 4th, 1776, he looked at his fellow colonists from the 13 colonies and basically said, um, uh, in the context of what they were doing on that day, he said, uh, let us remember that um, uh, we, will, we certainly are going to need to hang together because if we don't, we will uh, we will certainly hang separately. This sense of we're in it together, um, uh, that we can only um, uh, 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 survive ultimately in a world of rising interdependence if we work together. And uh, it's like, uh, you know, being in a boat. Uh, what was it, Martin Luther King who said, we came we we came here on different boats, but we're on but we're in but today we're in the same boat, uh, and uh, we 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 will all be victims if someone rocks it and tips it over. So this sense of 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 mutual vulnerability, in in little ways, but in macro ways as well. That's really that's really the insight that drives. Uh, world politics in the in the liberal democratic age and whether we grasp that 
reality and work with it in the next age will will determine whether the next age will be a liberal democratic age. Well, with that, thank you so much, Professor Eikenberry, for your time. We certainly learned a lot about these complex international issues, and we truly enjoyed hearing your perspective on them as well. And I encourage our listeners to keep an eye out for Professor Eikenberry's new book, A World Safe for Democracy. I have it right here with me as well. Made some decent headway into it. I'm really enjoying it. So I encourage everyone to um, open it take, and take a good read. Um, and so I, with that, I guess that's the end of our interview. Stay tuned to Policy Punchline for more interviews like these. And um, we'll sign off. Thank you, Ryan. And thank you, Professor Eikenberry. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Ryan. And uh, it was just a real pleasure to be with both of you and hope to continue the conversation. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.